following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. For this morning, Book of Judges, and we're in Judges chapter 11 today. We're looking at the story of a guy named Jephthah. And uh, Jephthah's story spans a few chapters, chapter 10, 11, and 12 in the book of Judges, but we're going to uh, condense it down to chapter 11 today because that's where the heart of his story takes place. So we'll read some sections of chapter 11, not the whole thing, but um, to, get the, uh, to get the idea of how the story goes. So Judges 11, starting in verse 1. Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead, his mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons, and when they were growing up, they drove Jephthah away. You are not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a gang of scoundrels gathered around him and followed him. Sometime later, when the Ammonites were fighting against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander so we can fight the Ammonites. Jephthah said to them, didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? The elders of Gilead said, nevertheless, we are turning to you now. Come with us to fight the Ammonites and you will be head over all of us who live in Gilead. Jephthah answered, suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites and the Lord gives them to me. Will I really be your head? The elders of Gilead replied, the Lord is our witness. We will certainly do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head and commander over them. And he repeated all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. Uh, jump down then to verse 29. Then the Lord, the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated 20 towns from Arior to the vicinity of Manith, as far as Abel, Keramim. Then Israel subdued Ammon. When Jephthah returned to his house in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter, dancing to the sound of timbrels? She was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh no, my daughter, you have brought me down and I am devastated. I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. My father, she replied, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised. Now the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites. But grant me this one request, she said. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends because I will never marry. You may go, he said. And he let her go for two months. She and her friends went into the hills and wept because she, because she would never marry. After the two months, she returned to her father and he did to her as he had vowed. And she was a virgin. From this comes the Israelite tradition that each year the young women of Israel go out for four days to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite. Well, it's a pretty traumatic story, isn't it? Man, I mean, there's a lot of violence in the book of Judges, but this one just seems to be particularly personal. It's a father taking the life of his only daughter. And if you heard a news item in which a father intentionally killed his daughter, you'd immediately assume, wouldn't you, the father was deeply disturbed. 
And you'd be right with Jephthah too. He's a deeply disturbed man. And, and to see why he gets to the point he gets to at the end of the chapter here, you need to go back to the beginning of the chapter and look at Jephthah's family of origin because that's where it starts. You want to understand Jephthah, you've got to look at his family and this is what drives him to commit the act that he commits later in life. Jephthah was the son of a prostitute. So straight away, that tells you something about his mother and it tells you something about his father too, doesn't it? We don't know whether he visited a prostitute before he got married or while he was married, but either way, it places a pretty big question mark over the moral character of his father, makes him a pretty dubious kind of role model for Jephthah. Jephthah, because his mum was a prostitute, he wouldn't have known his mum, wouldn't have had anything to do with her, and there would have been a huge amount of social shame that came upon Jephthah as the son of a prostitute, an outcast woman, the bottom of the social ladder. A huge social stigma would have been attached to Jephthah because of that through his whole life. And it gets worse. Then Jephthah's father marries, and he has several sons to his wife. So now you've got Jephthah, an illegitimate child, next to all of these sons who come from a legitimate marriage. So you can imagine the inferiority complex that Jephthah is going to have. Imagine how uh, less than perfect he would have felt next to his brothers. And then as his brothers grow up, they start thinking about the inheritance. His father would have owned a certain amount of land and certain assets, and normally that would have been divided equally between all of his children, including Jephthah. So his brothers start thinking, well, we don't want Jephthah to get any of this. He's an illegitimate child. We can't stand him. Let's see if we can carve him out of the will, get him out of the inheritance. And partly this is going to be motivated by greed too, isn't it? Because if they can get rid of him, it's a bigger piece of the pie for them. So they drive Jephthah away. They bully him or coerce him enough that he leave, has to leave town, forced to leave, and he goes and lives in this place called Tob. And then as he sets up in Tob, he gathers around him a group of scoundrels who follow him. So in other words, he falls in with the wrong crowd. And he's got these reckless, lawless people around him now. But you do start to see a little bit of his potential. You see these leadership qualities in Jephthah, that people were obviously drawn to him. People saw him as a leader. And in the midst of that situation, he also developed a pretty finely tuned set of fighting skills. So at the beginning of chapter 12, uh, he's referred to, as at the beginning of chapter 11, as a mighty warrior. So he's pretty good in battle, and that's going to be handy for him later on. So if Jephthah walked into a therapist's office today, <laughs> he's the kind of guy therapists could write books about. I mean, he has got so many issues completely dysfunctional family. It's a complex story. It's an extreme story. But at the heart of it is a very simple issue. The Jephthah received a huge lack of unconditional love in his background. Didn't get it from his mum. Didn't get it from his dad. Didn't get it from his brothers. All he knew was rejection and abandonment and abuse. That was his background. That was his family in his formative years. He didn't receive love. He didn't get grace and he didn't receive any approval. So he lacked the one thing that all of us desperately need, right? Especially in our formative years. We desperately need that grace, that love to be shown to us by other people, particularly by our family. We need for our own emotional well-being to be raised in families where there is unconditional acceptance, where we have encouragement, affirmation, and approval no matter who we are. It's just like eating physical food and being well-nourished physically is important for our physical growth. Having grace and love given to us by the people closest around us is important for our emotional and our spiritual well-being so that we grow into healthy, 
fully functioning whole people as adults. And that's exactly what Jephthah lacked in a huge way. One writer calls the situation where we lack this kind of unconditional love, he calls it disgrace, D-Y-S, grace. In other words, this is, it's the opposite of grace. It's a lack of unconditional approval in our life. And disgrace doesn't always have to look as extreme as it does in Jephthah's situation. We can receive disgrace in all kinds of ways. It may just be very passive ways through a, a lack, a deficiency of love being shown to us. Parents or friends withholding love and affirmation and encouragement. Or it could be through much more active ways, through bullying, through abuse, through abandonment, through neglect, through those kinds of things. But most of us, I would even say all of us, at some point in our lives, regardless of how good or bad your family has been, most of us has received some kind of disgrace in our life, some lack of love and acceptance. You may have received it in the context of your family. It may not have been an extreme situation like abuse or neglect. It may have just been that your dad wasn't around much, that he was at work a lot, and so you didn't receive as much affirmation and approval from him as you needed. It may have been your mum was angry all the time. It might have been that your parents got divorced and that had a deep effect on you. It may have been in some way that the grace tank in your life wasn't completely full. And then you come a little bit further in life and we may have received that disgrace in our schooling years. Our family is the primary source of it, but it can also happen socially, through other kids rejecting you, through bullying, through just not being included in the kind of social circle that you wanted to be included in. I remember when I was 13, uh, we went for a family trip to California, and I came back, and my best friend at the time told me that while I was away, he decided he wanted to be best friends with someone else and not me. And it sounds so petty when you, when you say it now, but the fact I can remember it so vividly right, shows that it's obviously left a deep mark in my life. And those kinds of things do hurt. And those kinds of things do scar us. And we do carry them forward into our present, that social disgrace that we feel. And you may have even experienced it in church, sadly enough. Churches are supposed to be places full of grace, but you may have experienced a church where it was just full of legalism. And you were just told you need to keep behaving yourself and do better and try harder and you're not good enough and you were made to feel guilty and condemned and feel like you're a constant disappointment to God. And that has an effect on our soul over time too. And it generates this disgrace where we need unconditional love and where we need to be led to the source of unconditional love who is God himself. Even our churches sometimes can work against that and leave us with this profound sense of disgrace. It can happen in all kinds of ways, active ways and passive ways from all kinds of people. But regardless of how we experience disgrace in our life, we automatically tend to carry it forward into our present. It's very difficult just to bury it and forget about it. It starts to come out in our present lives in all kinds of ways, as it does for Jephthah. A little bit later in his life, his brothers come back to him. After they've driven him away, his brothers go on to become the elders of their tribe the tribe of Gilead. But they're facing a military crisis. Israel's being attacked by the Ammonites, and so they need someone who's going to be a military commander. They know Jephthah's got some pretty impressive fighting skills, so his brothers now come to him, probably pretty sheepishly, you can imagine, and say, Jephthah, we want you to be our military commander. And Jephthah dismisses that first offer and says, not interested, you drove me away from my father's house, why should I help you? Then they come back to him with some new terms and say, well, 
Now, Jephthah, we want you to be our head or our leader. Ros is the Hebrew word. It's more than a military commander now. So they're coming back and saying, not just a military leader, we, we, we want you to be the head of the whole tribe, the whole tribe of Gilead now. And it's at that point, only at that point, that Jephthah accepts the offer. And now he becomes the leader of the very tribe that his family is a part of, the family who disowned him when he was a boy. So you can see what game Jephthah is playing here, eh? He's not that interested in winning a victory for God. He's not interested in Israel uh, being redeemed by God, delivered by God. That's the furthest thing from his mind. What he's interested in is gaining power over his brothers. What he's interested in is proving himself to his brothers or getting back at his brothers because they drove him away and now he's going to be the head of the tribe. He's going to have power over them. Now the tables have turned. But as you read between the lines, you realize Jephthah, he's this military guy, he's this tough fighting warrior, but inside he is a deeply insecure man because he doesn't know who he is. And he's received such a lack of love and grace in his life. Now he's just trying to compensate for it by getting back at his brothers, by trying to assert himself, by trying to prove himself and make himself the man. He's just trying to run from his past or redeem his own past by getting this position of power in the future, in the present. And this is one of the ways in which disgrace can catch up with us. We start asserting ourselves over other people to try and earn or, or grab the power and earn the approval that we desperately need because we lacked it when we were younger. This is a pattern that I'm calling the dominator. It's one of the ways that disgrace crops up in our lives, through trying to dominate other people and assert ourselves over other people. You grab onto whatever power you can. You push yourself forward. You push your own skills and abilities forward. You coerce people. Maybe it's passive aggression. You try and manipulate your way into situations so that you can be proved right or proved powerful or proved competent in the eyes of other people. But all it is is a window into your soul where there's a deep lack of grace and affirmation and approval, usually going back into your formative years. There's other ways in which disgrace crops up in your life other than the pattern that Jephthah exhibits. Another one is the perfectionist. Some of you can see yourself in this one really clear, the perfectionist especially for people who in their past had, had parents, coaches, teachers, whoever, that set impossible standards for them, really high standards, unrealistic standards. And now what you do, because you could never live up to your parents' expectations, now you put impossible expectations on your own life. Now you just try to live up to standards that you can't possibly reach. And you're a perfectionist. You're constantly trying for unrealistic standards and never really feeling like you're good enough. And if you do happen to reach the standards you've set for yourself, you know what happens, right? You set higher standards. So there's always another mountain peak. There's always another mountain to climb, and you never really feel like you measure up. Always got to be a little bit better, try a little bit harder, reach a slightly higher standard with work, with, with being a, a, a mum or dad or whatever it is. Always got to reach a little bit higher, or else I'm just not good enough. There's a third pattern, the recluse Maybe as a, as a child or teenager, you were hurt by other people. And because you lack that approval from them, now what you do is withdraw. And you just try and be an island. Because your theory is, even if you're not consciously aware of it, if you pull away from other people, they can't hurt you. So you've been hurt in the past, now you're going to just be self-sufficient, self-sustaining, not dependent on anyone, because then nobody can do the damage to me that people have done in the past. But of course, by doing that, what are you cutting yourself off from? the opportunity to be loved and to be healed 
and to receive the acceptance from other people that you desperately need. You're never really able to be restored because you're never able to be in relationship. And one final pattern of disgrace, and maybe this is the most common one, the people pleaser. It's just about all of us at some stage. The people pleaser. It's maybe the most obvious sign of disgrace that you felt you could never please people growing up, so now you try and please everybody. You find it very difficult to say no. You find it very difficult to set boundaries around yourself. You find it very difficult to disagree with people or express a different opinion because you feel like if you do, you're not going to be approved of by other people. And for you, that's a catastrophe. Not to be loved or to lose a bit of respect, not to be affirmed is absolutely catastrophic for you. So you say yes all the time. And the irony is, of course, you spread yourself in so many directions, you lose a sense of who you are. You're just what everyone else wants you to be. You don't have a solid sense of self and you end up letting people down because you say yes to far too many people. Maybe you can see yourself in some of those patterns, the ways that disgrace comes out in your life. Jephthah was certainly the dominator, but that's not the only pattern. Sometimes these things can cross over and combine themselves together. There might be other ways in which you can think of that disgrace is coming out in your life. But it always catches up with us. You can't bury it. It marks us in the present. And tragically, we carry it forward into our future as well, as Jephthah did. He gets to the eve of this battle with the Ammonites. And the Spirit of the Lord has already come upon him. But he goes and makes this foolish vow to God in verse 30. And he says, If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Now, a couple of things about this vow. Why does Jephthah make this vow to the Lord? The Spirit of God has already come upon him. That's a, that's a sure sign that God is going to give him victory. Why does he need to make this vow? Why does he feel he needs to make this vow? Because fundamentally, he is desperate to win because he needs this victory to get the approval of his brothers. If he loses this battle, his brothers are just going to be rejecting him. They're going to be entrenched in their absolute hatred for him. And he's going to confirm everything they've already thought about him, that he's a loser and he just can't get himself together. But if he can win this victory, then finally he thinks he'll have earned his brother's respect and approval. He'll have the affirmation that he desperately needs. And he's so desperate to win this victory, he basically makes a bribe to God. That's what it is. He's saying to God, I need this so much that how about if you let me win, I'll, I'll give you an offering. I'll make this offering. And the offering that he, that he, that he offers is the first thing coming out of his house when he returns in triumph. Now, most commentators believe that he absolutely expected this to be a human sacrifice. And most of the time, animals were kept outside. It's pretty unlikely he thought this was going to be a chicken. Pretty unlikely he thought this was going to be sacrificing his dog. He would have thought this is going to be either his wife or his daughter. It's really the only option. So you see how extreme it is. With full knowledge, Jephthah makes a vow to God that he will sacrifice either his wife or his daughter if God lets him win. That's a hideous action, but what it reveals is the depth of his desperation to be accepted. So desperate for his brother's approval, he's willing to sacrifice the life of his daughter. And so he goes out into battle. He wins against the Ammonites. And he comes back, there's this triumphant scene, but it's got a horrific undertone to it because who comes out dancing to meet him but his daughter? There's an echo here of the scene where the Israelites come through the Red Sea. 
And they get to the other side and Miriam plays the tambourine and there's a note of victory and the song of celebration for the Lord's deliverance. Same kind of scene here, except this is awful and eerie because we know what's coming. We know the vow that Jephthah has made. And sure enough, his daughter comes out to meet him and he's devastated. He says, oh no, my daughter, you have brought me down and I am devastated. He can't have been overly surprised though. Maybe he was disappointed it wasn't his wife, I don't know. But he'd made this vow and now he's got to go through with it. Now he's got to sacrifice his daughter. So she's particularly understanding and he gives her two months to go out and be with her friends and after two months she returns to her father and he did to her as he had vowed and she was a virgin. It's an awful story and even though Jephthah's won this huge victory against the Ammonites, even though he's delivered Israel, he ends as a lost and a broken man. So much of people's identity in these days was tied up with their family that's how you passed your name along. Your identity is given to your children. And so Jephthah, by sacrificing his only child, is in a very real sense cutting off his own identity. He's destroying himself. He's blotting out his name from the earth. He's cutting off his own future. It's a tragic story. Jephthah is trying to redeem his past, and he ends up sacrificing his future ends up cutting off future generations because he's trying to compensate for what's been done to him by his own family. So desperate to get the approval of his brothers and prove himself to everybody that he ends up sacrificing his only child and cutting off his own identity forever. And that's the kind of consequences that disgrace can have deeply in our lives. Maybe not that extreme, maybe not that tragic, but disgrace is so damaging and it can leave us in a state of despair, feeling like it's just going to be an endless cycle, that we just have to pass disgrace on from one generation to the next. But the good news is, even within this story, there are hints that it doesn't have to be this way. Even embedded in the Jephthah narrative, there are hints that disgrace doesn't have the final word, and that the cycle of disgrace can be broken. When Jephthah makes this vow to the Lord, he didn't fully recognize or appreciate that God himself is a father. And just like Jephthah, God has an only child, except God's child is a son and not a daughter. And God looked at all the disgrace in the world, all the ways in which human selfishness has contaminated his human creatures, and God also made a vow, just like Jephthah. Except this wasn't a hasty vow, it wasn't a foolish vow, this was very measured this was a vow that didn't come out of insecurity on God's part, but came out of a deep sense of security. It was a vow made not to try and gain someone's approval for himself, but it was a vow made on behalf of others to redeem us, to redeem the world. God, just like Jephthah, made a vow to sacrifice his only child. The whole Jephthah story is a foreshadowing of the gospel. It leads us to Jesus, and God sent his only child into the world to live and to die on the cross, Jesus became the ultimate victim of disgrace. Rejected by his friends, abandoned by his family, he died in disgrace. And not only that, not only rejected by people around him, but Jesus in his death took upon us all of our disgrace, all the things that have been done to you, all the love that was never shown to you, all the deficiency of grace in our lives. Jesus absorbed it within his own body and all the ways that we have perpetuated disgrace towards other people, our selfishness, our sin, our lack of love 
for other people, our lack of approval for other people. Jesus absorbed the whole lot in his body on the cross and he died for it to bring the power of disgrace to an end and transform it with the loving grace of a father who is defined by grace and love. God defines grace. All that need that you and I have for unconditional acceptance, unconditional approval. You know where we're supposed to find it? Not ultimately in our family, not ultimately from friends, not ultimately even from our church, but from God. He is love and he longs to give us that unconditional approval and acceptance that we desperately need. That's what our hearts cry out for. And Jesus on the cross made it possible. Whereas Jephthah's vow, Jephthah's action was this tragic act of suffering and loss. God's sacrifice of his son was a redemptive act that brought life and healing and grace to us because Jesus enabled the grace of God to be extended even to us, dead in sin. The grace of God to come to us and fill our lives that we could be defined not by the grace, the disgrace of our past, but by the grace of God shown to us in the present. So God's invitation to you is not to be marked and defined by your past, good or bad, but to be marked by his unconditional acceptance. That's what the cross speaks to us. It speaks of God's approval to you. No matter how unapproved you were in the eyes of other people or still are, it speaks of God's approval of you. He loves you and he is for you. The cross speaks of God's acceptance of you. No matter other people have disowned you or haven't accepted you, the cross tells you that God loves you. You've got to hear his approval, his acceptance, his affirmation of you spoken over your life. That's what Jesus came to show us. That's what Jesus came to do. And God invites us into that relationship where we are defined by his grace and his love, not the opinions of other people, not the treatment we receive at the hands of other people. And our lives now as Christians become a process of working out the healing grace of God in our lives. Because the reality is, just because you become a Christian doesn't mean your past is gone. doesn't mean those things that were done or not done to you have just disappeared. They leave scars, don't they? They hurt. Just because you're in a relationship with God doesn't mean that's all just gone away. But our lives become, and it is a lifetime journey, of allowing God's grace to become more and more deeply anchored in our soul, to internalize it more and more deeply, to drink of it more and more deeply so that it comes to define us and we live out of the abundance of His grace rather than what we've been shown in our past or even in our present. That's a lifetime journey, having your identity ever more deeply anchored in the grace of God and then letting His grace work its way out into other relationships. So those relationships then can be characterized by grace as well. And we don't live out of a sense of constantly having to compensate for a lack of approval, a lack of acceptance, because we find our soul's anchorage and rest deeply in the grace of God. And the more centered you are in the unfailing, unconditional grace of God, the more secure a person you are going to be in relationships with other people. And you're able to be your true self anchored in the grace of God as you interact with other people. There's a person in our church who uh, gave me permission to share a little bit of their story, a story of disgrace and a story of grace. They write this. My birth mum dropped me at a babysitter when I was a year old and never returned. 
As a result of her leaving, I was fostered during the week and then looked after by my dad some weekends until I was around three years of age. Memories of the next eight or nine years aren't great. In fact, I have not one single happy memory that I can recall. That whole period was filled with loads of emotional and physical abuse. I remember falling asleep in the dark outside as I'd been locked out of the house as a punishment in winter. I remember things like having Dad hold me down while Mum hit me. I remember the taste of mustard powder as I had dry spoonfuls in my mouth as punishment. The rest I deliberately forget. Love and acceptance were not part of my childhood at all. My parents argue that they showed love by buying me lots of stuff and taking me overseas, neither of which counts for anything when you had a home life like I did. I'm completely determined to make sure my children have a childhood full of unconditional love from me. To be honest, whether I believed in Jesus or not, I feel like I would have had this determination. I guess the difference is, though, that God is a part of our lives, and now looking back, I can see His working in my story many times along the way. I'd like to think that it's His grace that is going to help me raise my kids with real love, but I feel like I might only see this too when I look back in the years to come. It's a really honest story, isn't it? Of disgrace, an awful story of disgrace, but the way in which that person is choosing not to pass disgrace on to their children, but to be the break in the chain and to pass grace instead of disgrace because of the grace that they've received in their own life. Every person's steps towards grace and the journey of healing grace is going to look a bit different. That process of Working against the disgrace of our past is going to look different in every case. But there are some practical things that can help, just as beginning steps. One is to hear the voice of God speaking approval to you in the Scriptures. Now, one of the ways that disgrace comes out from time to time in my life is through anxiety. And I find that when I'm feeling anxious, to, to center myself, particularly in those Scriptures that talk of God's approval of me and, and anchor myself in His affirmation of me in the Scriptures is so powerful. It literally does something to my anxiety levels, brings them down when I do those things. Scriptures like Romans 8, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Scriptures like Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? That does something to my soul. Because fundamentally, you need to listen to a different voice. If the voice of disgrace is to find you, there's got to be some other voice that comes in, and it's the voice of the Lord speaking to you through the Scriptures. You need to allow that voice to be internalized, not just to get into your head, but pray, God, get this into my bones. Help me to internalize these truths deeply and gravitate to those scriptures that just speak to you of his unconditional love, his unfailing grace that's been poured out on you. Over time, your soul will receive it and it will start to change you. Another step is don't do this in isolation, especially if you are the recluse type and you've pulled away from other people. Don't shut off other people because they are going to be part of your journey. One of the ways that God will heal you is through the words and the actions of other people as you find your way into relationships that can be life-giving rather than life-depleting. And even in the context of this church, if you can get yourself into a life group or an accountability relationship or have an alongsider, somebody who can be the words of encouragement to you, who can pray for you, Somebody who you give permission to identify if there are these patterns of disgrace in your life. And you say, can you see these things cropping up in me? And can you help me figure out what I can do? Pull other people close to you. Have a band of brothers or a band of sisters that you can walk through because this stuff is hard and you need people praying with you and you need people encouraging you and supporting you. It's one of the ways in which God is going to release his healing power into your life. These things are not easy. And in some cases, it's going to mean 
going and seeing a professional counsellor and spending some time with them and having them heal, help you heal the, grace of, the disgrace of your past. Heal it at its source. And there's no shame in that either. Don't feel any shame in going and seeing a professional therapist or counsellor to help you with the hard work of the healing that needs to happen in your life. If you need a counsellor, uh, email the office, email one of the staff members, we'd be happy to make a referral for you. I think if you're struggling with disgrace, the thing you most need is hope, isn't it? You just feel so consigned to repeat it. feel like it's just a fait accompli. And you need to hear the good news of the gospel, that Jesus has come to break the power of disgrace in your life, that the sins of our fathers don't need to be passed on to our children. That cycle of disgrace can be transformed into a cycle of grace that we pass on to friends and to family. You are not consigned to just keep on perpetuating the same disgrace you've received. You can be renewed. You can be transformed. It's going to be a lifetime journey, but the healing grace of God can work against that disgrace of your past. And as you allow God to redeem your past and stop trying to redeem it yourself, then you find that he also heals your present and he also breathes huge hope into your future. So may our lives be deeply defined by the grace of God. May we be anchored in that grace. May we live out of his healing grace rather than the disgrace of our past or our present. May we drink deeply from the well of God's unending, unfailing grace in our lives. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your table this morning, and we drink the juice and we take the wafer that remind us of your sacrifice for us. God, I pray that you would pour your grace into our hearts in a fresh way. Just give us a fresh awareness of the depth of your love for us and the depth of your approval for us. Lord, for those who are struggling to feel approved, for those who feel like they're a disappointment, to those who feel like they can't measure up to other people's expectations or your expectations. Lord, this morning, for those who are just in chains to their past and feel so bound up by things that have been done to them or not done to them, I pray, Lord God, that you would break those chains this morning by the power of your grace. We pray that you would set people free from disgrace in their life. Father, remind us that our lives don't have to follow the same path as Jephthah. We don't have to sacrifice our future but we can allow you to heal us deeply, past and present and future. We cry out for your grace this morning. And I pray, God, whatever is preventing the hearts of anyone here from receiving your grace deeply, whatever barriers there are there, Father, break them down, that your grace and your love would penetrate more deeply this morning into, into the soul of our being than it ever has before, that we would be people who know, who know in the innermost being that nothing can separate us from the love of God that's been revealed to us in Christ Jesus. May we be people whose lives are defined by your healing grace. We thank you. We celebrate your grace now. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shore.org.nz Alternatively, you can email office at shore.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.